Hey, Alan Christina here. We just want to say thank you so much to all the patrons who are helping make this new Vic 42 happen, especially Sam from 2% Jazz. 2% Jazz has been hugely instrumental in helping us get this going. So go there and drink their coffee. We can guarantee it's absolutely fantastic. Um, today, for the first one, we're going to be featuring Ian Chisholm. Ian's one of the founders of Roy Group Leadership Training, and we thought that he would be a great person to start off with because of the way he's helping people change their leadership and find their unique abilities. All right, so let's go meet Ian Chisholm. The first thing we want to know is a little background on you. So give us like the, you were born till like end of high school, like give us that background. Like where, where'd you come from? How'd you get there? That sort of stuff. Uh, born in Edmonton. My mom and dad were still at university. So they were in university when you were born. That's a lot of commitment. Are you the oldest? Yes. Oh. Of how many? Three. My birthday is exactly nine months after reading week. <laughs> Interesting, hey? Oh, no, it's true. <laughs> Not a lot of reading was happening, Yes. <laughs> Uh, so I spent the first few years in Edmonton. My mom and dad returned home to the family farm in Saskatchewan, which my grandparents lived on, and my great-grandmother lived on, and uh, her family was there before that. Okay. I think we're one of only like four or five farms in Saskatchewan that's five generation. Oh, really? Which is surprising, right? You yeah. think that people have been there for hundreds of years, but... Yeah. Um, so that's interesting how that all started with like a land grant from the Canadian government saying this is cheap land, which I always thought was kind of cool. Yeah. And in light of the last few years with reconciliation, I'm just realizing that, oh, it was a nice big privileged <laughs> land grant that was written to my grandfather. Yep. Um, but super proud to be from Saskatchewan. Uh, super proud to be a farm kid. Um, how, how old were you when you moved to Saskatchewan? Like four and a half. Oh, so still so started kindergarten. Yeah. Living in my grandparents' house with my grandparents, taking the bus into That's school. awesome. How long was the bus ride? Two miles. Wow. Our farm is pretty close to Maidstone. Yeah. I complained that I had to bike like three blocks to school. That's, yeah. Right. This was daunting because kindergarten through to grade 12 all rode the same bus. So you literally, over the course of your school life, moved to the back of the bus. <laughs> was it that noticeable? Like, no, no. Was, unless you were super cool, maybe you faded to the back early, but that was not my situation. I was going to ask, were you yeah. an early fader or were you a late fader? Late fader. <laughs> late fader. Uh, all of the stuff that comes with that, like uh, when I think back to the risk we took as kids with snowmobiles and ATCs and quads and pellet guns and bear masks hunting my friend's little brother. Like, uh, stupid amount of risk taken I, as a child and really awesome. I think that was an like, era thing though too, right? Like, I just think, yeah, it would be unacceptable today, but it was <laughs> awesome back then. Yes, it was. Just go for it. And we're still alive. And we're still alive. Yeah, so not me. I'm sure statistically there was a price paid by our generation for that. Yeah. I don't know anybody that was hurt Yeah. terribly, but I'm sure it happened. So when you were in Saskatchewan, how long were you there until? Till I was 17. 
Oh, interesting. Okay, and then where'd you go after 17? So, uh, every second Christmas, we would come out to Victoria to see my aunt and uncle who worked at Pearson College. My uncle was the biology professor. My aunt worked for the BC government. So every second Christmas, they came out to Saskatchewan, and on alternating Christmases, we would come out here and have the entire Pearson College campus to ourselves. That's kind of cool. The pool and the kayaks and everything. That's kind of cool. It was awesome. Yeah. So I knew I wanted to apply to a UWC. So when I was 16, I applied to Pearson College to represent Saskatchewan and was told that I didn't get in, which was heartbreaking. First of at least two major heartbreaks in my life. And two weeks before school started in grade 12, a North American boy turned down his spot at the United World College in New Mexico. So they were out and I was in. I like packed a hockey bag and went to New Mexico. Okay. Which was awesome. Yeah, that's, that's Best a... two years of my life. Really? Oh. And how old were you? I was like... Got there when I was 16, quickly turned 17, and then you're there 17, 18, and then start university a year late. Wow. But kids from, I think, 93 countries, the years that I was there. Yeah. Two Canadians in my year. Awesome. And so how, how did that experience shape you? Because that's not a normal, like that's not, not everyone gets that experience, right? So what was that, like what did you get out of that experience the most, do you think? Uh, so personally, it was the first time I had ever felt healthy. Mm. So I had really bad asthma as a kid. Yeah. Still have it, but it's not very serious. Um, and there was something about living in the desert and mountains of northern New Mexico that my asthma just disappeared. So I went from being like somebody who wasn't very active and somebody who was, you know, kind of a bookworm and just not like, not called to activity. And I had so much energy. I needed like four hours of sleep a night. I, yeah, it was transformational. It was awesome to feel that good at 17. And, and what, what about like, like emotionally and culturally, like what? Yeah. Socially to, uh, to go from a place that was pretty homogeneous. Although interesting intersections of growing up on the prairies, like when people came from Vietnam. Yeah. uh, I forget what year that was, 84 or something when there was a mass immigration to Canada from Vietnam. Yeah. Stone took a lot Mm -hmm. of those families. Um, but in large, it's pretty homogeneous place. So to all of a sudden be like in a place that has 90 plus countries, all with different values and norms and what's cool and what's not cool. Uh, the schoolwork was pretty heavy duty compared to what I had been used to doing. The activities were amazing. So you're just like living, working, playing 21 hours a day for two years straight. Like you just don't stop. Wow. So that was awesome. Just the amount of friction between cultures. Yeah. You learn a lot about the way you really want to be with people from around the world, not just what does it mean to be a 17-year-old from Maidstone, Saskatchewan, which up until then was, I thought I was doing a pretty good job of. <laughs> we all do at that age. Invincible. And, and so what was the main thing that taught you then, do you think? Like if you're looking back on it now. 
I mean, it was probably the introduction to the power of inquiry, that the safest thing you can do in any given situation is probably ask a question mm. about something that you're curious about, rather than leading with a, an opinion or a conviction or a position. It's to just find out what's all here in this conversation. Yeah. Right? That's just a way better way to start than leading with content. Which I don't think a lot of people realize until they're older. Do, do you know what I mean? Like, yeah, I think that true. was a fairly young, that's a fairly old realization for you at that age. Sure. Right? Because I think most or a lot of people at that age are afraid to ask questions. Yeah. They're afraid to stand out. They're afraid to be there. So I think that's an interesting yeah. result for you. And definitely, like, I can think of a number of mistakes made where I was probably a little bit insensitive or a little bit, you know, North American centric or made an assumption that, you know, caused damage. Yeah. It's all pretty safe in this, you know, you're all part of this community. There's only 250 people, even with faculty. Yeah. Um, but yeah, when you make a mistake in that setting and you hurt somebody's feelings who you really care about, those lessons go, they're very short and sharp and stay with you for a long time and you don't do that again. Right. Yeah, yeah. You, for instance, you don't set somebody up who's learned English as a second language for a funny practical joke based on that. Right. I did that. thought it was awesome. And yep. Maidstone, that would have been like perfect. There, it was like, that was a bit of a dick move. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. That's fascinating. So, so, you're, so when did you come back to, did you go back to Saskatchewan or did you come Alberta. back here? Alberta. Back to Edmonton. So back to Edmonton. Back to Edmonton for university. Okay. Um, a lot of students don't go home after UWC. Yeah. Uh, because it's a bit of a launch pad to go wherever you want to go. Right. A lot of students, even from Canada, stay in the States. Right. Yeah, I don't know why. It was time to come home. Yeah. I, uh, I love Edmonton. So that was a draw. It was close to home. My grandparents were now, you know, a few years older. So that was kind of a golden time with them just down the road. Yeah. Our farm is about three hours from Edmonton. I think the expectation of my family was that once you do this thing, then you'll come back and go to university where we went to university. Right. And there was a certain amount of weight in that that I didn't push against. So yeah. I came back to Edmonton. And sadly, did really not love university. Um, if I map out uh, the theme of learning in my life, there is like this five-year low that sadly represents my time at university. What were you studying? Yeah. Biological sciences because I wanted to be a doctor. I wanted to be like a prairie GP. I wanted to be overworked and uh, a generalist. And that was like the only goal I had second heartbreak in my life was wasn't even close like did wasn't even close to getting it delusional <laughs> made myself do a degree in biology and chemistry and like clawed through it every day it was against every instinct in my body to like finish that thing and my marks showed it and they were like no chance no like Sometimes there's hard decisions to make about who gets into med school and not. With you, it's not even a hard decision. Like, not even close. So, you failed med school. <laughs> I mean, so, wait, what did you walk away with for a degree? BSc, Bachelor okay. of Science. Okay. 
Uh, I said five years, not four, because in my third year, I was just so desperate to get out of uh, where I was and international again that I took a year of university over in Scotland. The university had an exchange program and they actually let me take pre-med over there. There's really no such thing as pre-med in North America, even though people say they're in pre-med. I mean, I was in pre-med in my own mind. Really, I was in post-high school biology and chemistry, but um, they let me study gross anatomy, physiology, and biochemistry in Scotland, and I loved it. There was something about the way they do university in the UK. It's more discussions, more like get your own work done, we're not going to spoon feed you, less memorization, more discovery, and uh, yeah, I did really well, so I thought I was on track, but came back, and the last two years here were not good, so... So what, so what does that mean they were not good? Like you just didn't work, it didn't fit for you? Well, yeah, it was just a simple game of you, need, you needed a nine. University of Alberta uses a nine scale. So you needed a nine in a chemistry course. So the smart kids beg their nine in year one when it's basic chemistry. If you get a six in year one, then you're going to beg a nine in second year chemistry. And then that gets pushed to year, for me, four. And then finally, you're in your last year of university where it's like seriously tough stuff and you have to beg a nine in chemistry. Ouch. And I just thought that my uh, manner with patients would win the day. That was my daydream of being with people when they were at their most human, feeling very vulnerable, and somehow being a source of something for them in those moments that would be a really positive influence. Good news or bad news, like I just had daydreams of being with families, delivering tough news, and helping them figure out the way forward. Okay, so that's really interesting to me, because if you take that and fast forward it to today. That's much of what it feels like to do a lot of my work. No, absolutely. So I can... I can no, no, that's... I didn't realize that what I do now was even a job. Yeah. Like, who, who grows up in high school saying, I think I want to do leadership development? Yeah. Nobody. You want to be a doctor, lawyer, ice hockey player, stuntman, or police officer? Fireman. Everyone wants to be a fireman. Fireman. Okay, six. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I just uh, loved ER. ER. St. Elsewhere. I loved medical. <laughs> I loved medical dramas. And it was just so easy for me to want that to be my week. Um, another telltale thing of course these things make sense in retrospect yeah. if I ever like commission a piece of sculpture on a university campus from this end the sculpture will be all jagged and sharp and chaotic but from the other side it'll just be like a jetliner like yeah. so smooth and exact like the writing was on the wall the whole time but it, I just couldn't decode it yeah um, I had the chance in year four university because of some work I was doing in the summer, to go and be in the surgical theater for open heart surgery. And I thought, like in the movies, and like all these medical dramas that I had been keeping up on, that you would be behind glass up in a balcony watching, right? No way. The guy's head was like right here. And I just, like, street shoes, like, uh, washed up, but not touching anything, obviously, and masked and everything, but like literally wearing jeans and my sneakers off the street. The guy's head was here, and they like did this procedure, taking the 
vein or the artery out of the leg and replacing that in the heart and like cracking the ribs and icing down the chest cavity, shutting down the heart. The anesthesiologist is running this guy like a soundboard. Like, it's awesome. All I paid attention to was the teamwork. The science, like the pH of that guy's chest cavity did not, I was like, boring. The teamwork of the anesthesiologist and the nurses and the intern and the more experienced surgeon and that facet like captured my imagination yeah so then i was like I'm, i desperately want to do this for a living because i want to do that it's, it's just, interesting just how the you, science part that i didn't get you kind of you had this underlying kind of desire and structure like like a makeup of who you were and what excited no, it was all you, there right it was all but there. then you were chasing something that you thought was, was the package you, right exactly I feel like that's a common mistake for you. I do. Oh, God. I, uh, and it's a bit therapeutic now because we work with a lot of mentors at the University of Alberta, both through their venture mentoring service, but also through the Lougheed College. And I was just so desperate. When I came back from Scotland, I wish so much that there was an adult in the equation who would have like found me fascinating enough to go for a coffee. And at that point had some method to help me distill down what all of my daydreams had in common and help me see that that's what needed to be protected, not the, the form that I thought it was going to come to my life in. Yeah. Like that, for an adult to do that would have been invaluable to me. It would have saved me years of heartache to have an adult that would have helped me pivot and take stock of you know, this gift that has shown itself all the way since I was little that I was daydreaming about in the form of being a doctor that doesn't have to be in the form of a doctor. That would have been awesome. I mean, that would have been, and I think it's a shame that universities don't have adults with spare time on their hands to have those conversations. Yeah, even like just community barely has adults with spare time on their hands to do that. No, exactly. Right? Like... Uh, First Nation schools in Saskatchewan, uh, one thing that I'm very keen on is that they have like an elders room mm. and they've literally cracked it to say there's, you know, three or four elders that hang out there. And when you need them, you go hang out with them and it goes wherever it needs to go. I'm like, how is that not brilliant? And, and to your point, why don't we have that in society? A place where people can just go and be around Adults who have a bit of method in terms of helping people find a path in life. Yeah. Which is so undervalued, right? Sure. It's like people don't even put value in that. I mean, I don't know about you, but I was a kid who wasn't really listening to a lot of people either. Like I, no. I would have, even if someone had come to me and said, I know you want to be a doctor, but really? We're going to distill this down. I might have shut off. Right? I Unless that person occupied the ground in a way that was very solid exactly those is, people they kick you in the ass right you can't you can't help but take away what they said right which which is oh. also a, a cornerstone and a part of what you're doing now for sure right mm -hmm. so so walk me through when what you're doing now started for you so You've gone, th you've, you've gone through, you kind of moved around, had these experiences back to university where you had like some horrible experiences plus one year of like, oh, wow, I really get this. 
plus you come back. What was the path to the beginning of what you're doing now? I mean, it was the failure of not getting into med school. Very clearly, in the house that I lived in the last two years of university, my old boss from Scotland, I had worked in a pub in Scotland, and became very good friends with the owner, a guy named Jack Bruce, who's just a beauty. Uh, he had come over to go skiing. We were in my living room, sitting on my great aunt's furniture, and like 10 letters from med schools arrived the same day. And they were all like, we're sorry to inform you. Like 10 of them. Like, open another one, open another one. And Jack Bruce just kind of patted me on the back and said, like, don't worry, you'll land on your feet. That was it. <laughs> we went and skied our brains out. Like, So yeah, that was the start. Not getting into med school was the start of the rest of my life. And so once that kind of motivation happened, which often, I mean, you, you, I, you might find that I agree that those negative situations that we put so much value in are often the kickstarts of the brilliant things we should do. For sure. What was the path for you from that negative experience of like all this emotion and the, whatever the feelings were and all yeah. that emotion to the beginning of like, when did you see what you're doing now as a career path? Like what was the transition from that moment of, hey, you're not going to make it to what you're doing, like the beginning of your path now? Well, the other thing that I think is interesting is that it's, also, it's, it's always usually a thread that's already in your life but you just thought it was extraneous. So five years before that moment, my dad sent me on something called Operation Enterprise, which was for grade 12 students who are interested in business. I was not interested in business. My dad's interested in business, right? He's an accountant and he's really savvy on that front. But he really felt strongly that this was something that I kind of needed to add to my quiver. And I was like, okay. Like I said, I just never pushed back on authority very much. If my dad thought this was something I should do, then I was like, okay. So I went on Operation Enterprise, lit it up, had a great time. Um, um, took a year off, I think, but then they asked if I would go back as like a staff member which was basically like a camp counselor, right? Yeah. It's like a couple of weeks of work in the summer. But then they moved a program to Canada and asked if I would be the program director of that. So then that was about two months work every summer. And so every summer in university, when I wasn't working on the farm, I would be doing some assignments with Operation Enterprise. When I got the letter and the folks down in New York found out that I was at a loose end in my life, they asked me if I would come down uh, to New York to work with the Operation Enterprise program. Okay. Which was not glamorous. It was picking up speakers at the airport, uh, setting up meeting rooms. Um, but uh, it wasn't glamorous, but it was the start of a number of really deep patterns in our work now, like connecting with those speakers on the drive back from the airport mm. was go time for me making sure that when people walked into that room that we had set up, that they would kind of stop for a second and realize that something special is going to happen in this room. Um, yeah, well, that just kind of went. I spent one year, one year in New York and then renewed for another year in New York and then was like on a third year in New York. 
And all the while, you're meeting all these incredible people who are the kinds of adults that we just talked about that I wish just hung out at universities to talk with young people, right? They were doing it voluntarily. But they were like the choice, choice, choice people. That's cool. Yeah, that was just kind of, that, that was my entry into this field of executive development, leadership development, culture, people. That was it. So, so give me the, you have an interesting saying that I think is, uh, you're, what you're kind of talking about is mentorship. Let's like really at the end of at the core, right? Okay. You have an interesting saying about the fact that you don't, you can't really call yourself a mentor. That's true. It's something you have to earn from somebody who sees you that way. That's true. Where did that start for you? Like where did that idea culminate for you? Uh, well, again, I think the threads are behind you and you just don't. So uh, the guest speakers at Operation Enterprise were a collection of adults who were those kinds of people. So I saw this like immensely concentrated pattern of, oh, that's a dynamic that works. You never want to be as an individual short on that number of people around you because they intersect your life and your evolution goes through a little quantum leap, like they quicken your development. So as an individual, I saw that happen and had like mentor, 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 mentor. Um, the next chapter that happened after New York was like an exponential version of that same pattern of there will be people that step into your life and all of a sudden you are capable of like 10, 100, 1000 times more because of their belief in you and the time they invest in you and whatever they see in you and that they've got some clue and some method for working with that potential. Uh, but it wasn't until I came back to Canada and met a gentleman named Bob Chartier, who's on the wall. Um, it was his conviction that there are some gift words and you have to earn them. And they're like, leader is one, team is one. In our recent work uh, with Pod C, which is a little consultancy that does um, EDI work, uh, they've chosen to kind of say that ally is one of those words in that work, and that mentor is the most misappropriated, hijacked gift word of all time. Yeah. So the 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 statement or the belief didn't get clarified until what's that? Twelve years after wanting that in my life and then finding it through these different patterns. Interesting. I like that it was a series of people for you. Right? Oh, yeah. Like I think I think often when people think of like mentorship and leadership, they think of like one person that's with you forever. I, I totally agree. It's actually uh, in the book project, writing a book about mentorship, it's the biggest revelation. Uh, that in looking back and hearing stories from other people, it's almost always a collection of mentors. Yeah. And they kind of were collaborating yeah. and conspiring and like addressing things together. So I totally agree. The, the mental model of mentorship is this one-to-one -one thing. I am the apprentice and they are the mentor, yeah. right? Yeah. And I'm not sure it works that way. I mean, it can, 
But I think there's something very powerful when almost like a GPS device, you connect to one satellite, it'll tell you what side of the world you're on. You connect to two, and you know where you are within about 200 feet. You connect to three, and it'll tell you where you are in terms of inches. So I think mentors are the same. If there's more than one, there's this very clear sense of, okay, this is obviously where I am, and therefore what I need to do is a little bit easier to, to choose. And so you're, you said your mentors were all kind of working together. I'd love mm -hmm. to understand that a little bit more. Like, so did they, they knew each other? They knew they were working with you? What do you mean by that? Yeah, in the Operation Enterprise days, I think they were all volunteers. They wanted the best for the program. They really sensed that my team, after a few years of struggling, not my team, but the program had struggled, that when our team came in, my brother was on that team, my cousin was on that team, uh, some really good friends were on that team, but we were a team, gift word team. Uh, I think all of those volunteers really got around us and championed us to say they're obviously not going to work at Operation Enterprise together, but there was just a strange, I don't know, affiliation or loyalty or attraction to the group of us. And they just, in, in some way, they made the choice to champion the shit out of us. That's cool. And they championed us all. What is the core that you would like to get across around that? Like if you could just give us kind of your heart on, you talked about two things, the importance of people coming around and like in your younger years, you would have loved someone to be like, hey, this is what I'm actually seeing in you. Right. You, can, you can make a career out of that. Right. Versus kind of the collective mentoring thing that you kind of experience. I think those are, they're different, but they're tied. Right? So mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. expand on that for me for a little bit. Well, I mean, it's, uh, it's not even something I've ever said consciously before, but um, like nostalgia as a word means like an untended to pain. And I just think that so, so often our purpose in life comes from some untended to pain. So the fact that I was missing that as a young person and really wiped out. I mean, it was not pretty, really heartbroken. Um, and ever since then, I think I've just had an eye out for like, okay, that was not cool. And I unconsciously, right, would like to start, I'm now fascinated in this behavior. I'm now fascinated in this arena of who gets this, who doesn't get it? What are the conditions that makes it work? What ruptures the, the, the conditions? Yeah, I think it's just, you know, the things that kind of hollow you out also create space for you to hold something. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I've never made the connection between that university experience and why I'm uh, endlessly curious about the dynamic of mentorship. And I feel like there's something between those two experiences too, right? Like this is, this was what you're talking about, about kind of like that nostalgic feeling of, hey, I'd like to solve this leftover whatever, right? Mm -hmm. Versus the people coming around you right. to help you with that, right? right? So those are, they're, they're two different experiences. So talk about that one now. Like if this one is that kind of what you were just talking about, what is this experience with the whole crew coming around you? How does that f help fill that and set your direction? 
Well, the New York experience, which was kind of volunteers, a constellation of volunteers around us, uh, matured. The next assignment was over in Scotland, where for the first time I reported to a board of directors, which was really just an extension or a deepening of that same pattern. Although now they were officially committed to either helping me be successful in an impossible little task or replace me. So all of a sudden that investment in me, that care of me, that challenging of me, that support of me was locked in. They had agreed officially to do that. And that uh, there's a number of people from that experience in Scotland that were directors on a very, very powerful board. Disproportionately powerful for the size of organization that we were. The founder of the organization had assembled a very, very special group of rockets. Mm. I mean, they were amazing people. Yeah, so that, I mean, that just formalized it, right? Yeah. Uh, informally, right behind that, uh, operationally, was a group of practitioners that I met so that we could deliver on the vision that I had promised the board we would make happen. And that's a whole other group of people who have earned that word in my life in a way that I doubt they could ever unearn it. Like, and maybe it's because I was in my late 20s. Maybe it's because I was in way over my head. Maybe it was because at some level, failure was not an option this time. Um, yeah, Mark Bell, Robert Henderson. Um, yeah, terrific incredible people that have really shaped the way I work and what I care about. Big stuff. Let's bring this all to now. Cause I think one of the things that, I mean, you and I met what, like five years ago, maybe now? Something like, like that? It. Yes. Maybe, I don't remember. It was a while. Yeah. Um, I, I immediately was interested in you because I, I, I love meeting cool people and I like people who think a lot and I feel like you're a thinker I just look like a people <laughs> right yeah, yeah. And, and <laughs> I just do this a lot yeah it's the beard it's the beards make us look like oh. we're thinkers um, but I feel like you, you've although you've been shaped by all these experiences to where you are today which we all are to some degree you've you've chosen a a, a way of being and working right now there's a little different than a lot of people would choose. I don't. I think that because of your views and the way you look at this whole mentorship equation, on a on a business front, it makes it more challenging to run a business because of the way that you're trying to instill this solid level of leadership mentorship, mm-hmm. which I think most people would be like, "Hey, here's my one page infomercial and my stuff," and I'm gonna like you're gonna they're gonna throw around programs and terms and like all this stuff that's true i feel like you're trying to do it in a much more intrinsic way than other people are you're trying to put and make it like more like human more impactful on the person uh what has what has that led to with challenges for you with some of the people you've been working with like where where is that message challenging to get through and what kind of where do you find it like it takes off and really goes like what are the two environments that allow what you believe to live or die 
Well, I do think uh, my life would probably be easier if I chose to sell expertise and not practice. Uh, when what you're selling is a practice, there's really no like end date. You don't stop practicing. So I doubt that I will ever retire and that some days that makes me sad. I could slow down, I guess. Um, yeah, I agree with you. Um, it doesn't work for me if it's not personal somehow. That doesn't mean that I have to be involved. It just means that whoever is involved, there's a, there's a torch that's been passed. Uh, in the book, we kind of just talk about how uh, there's this German idea of Zugenru. It's like migration restlessness. If animals experience it when they're getting ready to migrate, so little birds, their anatomy changes and their physiology changes, their chemistry. See, I did get a degree in this stuff. Um, it's really, it's really quite uh, dramatic and not easy on them because it's like this really gross transformation. But they're getting ready to take on a journey that they know they have to, and it's undeniable, and so they just go with it. Elk go through it. it lots of animals go through. It. Um, I think for uh, a lot of people, we have something similar inside us that wants to go from being successful to being significant in the lives of other people, that somehow that acquires a currency that we actually would like. I think some people experience it earlier than others. Um, yeah, in the book, I talk about um, how I think secretly we would all like to have a small picture of ourselves in the corner of some dojo somewhere that somebody lights a candle underneath other than our mom. <laughs> right? Like, like we would like, even if they hadn't met us, we'd like to see the connection to this person who I, I'm not related to, but who's practicing what I'm practicing. And I owe part of my practice to them. That's the way I feel about my mentors. Uh, I'll admit it openly. I hope that I'm remembered that way. That's kind of the goal. And so I think the work I do connects with people who know that Zugenru. And for those that haven't felt it yet, I think our approaches feel a bit philosophical or um, like, oh, he's quite serious about this. Like, I don't know if this is going to work with our team. Like, and that's okay. Like, I, you know, you don't win them all. So I, I, if there's any filter that decides who this works with and who it doesn't, uh, I seem to have found myself on Team Zugenru. <laughs> I need a t-shirt. Team like Zugenru. The Zugs. <laughs> right. That would be a great... We need a team name. The Zugs. Yeah. And so, I, so if, you, if you're looking at these kind of different things, what is, what is your favorite outcome when you watch other people? So I, I know like... I, I've, I've, well, two, I have a couple questions, but what, when you're working with someone or a group of people, what is the, what is, what, when do you start getting excited? Like what's happening when you start getting excited? Cause you're, you're clearly passionate about what you do okay. and, the, and you, whenever you see that working, like what, what is it that gets you the most excited about it? Can we swear on this? Absolutely. Okay. Just think I may need to. You're, you, I mean, I so never the, fucking swear, but you can swear all you perfect. want. Perfect. Okay, now I know. Uh, the moment that I will never get tired of is when somebody who's 
wicked smart, like wicked accomplished, very successful, have, you know, maybe they've been a doctor. Maybe they've started a multi-billion dollar venture. Maybe they, you know, have the order of Canada. Maybe they were, you know, a very, a person that the world pays attention to. And they suddenly hit that moment where they realize that what they know is valuable, but it's not the whole picture and it's about their way. I'm just like, and they, and they say, fuck, like there's a piece of the puzzle that I have ignored my whole successful life. That's about making the other the focus of my full attention being fascinated with their experience, where they are at, the options that they have, and that somehow the way that I conduct myself could change what's possible inside this person and then around this person. When they realize, I mean, that's not magic, but it is the closest thing to real magic that human beings uh, get to. When they realize that that's something that they now have to master, that's the best. I do, I genuinely feel like I have just been a part of giving the world a very big gift when that happens. <laughs>